I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The kickoff to earnings season, J.P. Morgan, City, both reporting, both falling, even after pretty good quarters. So what does that say about the beaten up bank trade today? We debate your money with our investment committee, as always. Joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, Pete Nigerian, and Degas Wright, the chief investment officer of Decatur Capital Management. Let's take you to the wall, check the markets. We do have the Dow and the S&P in negative territory. Not too bad, though, to the downside. NASDAQ's having another good day after yesterday's monster day. All right, Pete, I come to you. J.P. Morgan, okay? The quarter was good. Loan loss provisions were surprisingly good. The commentary today is a surprising show of coronavirus resilience. That's what I just read. Why is the stock down? You know, and initially it had a nice pop to the upside, Scott. I think, I think people just still step back and they say, you know what, the financials, we need a lot more. We need to hear a lot more about what they're going to be able to do at some point in time that's outside of the trading spot. Because that's, that's another area. The loan loss provisions, well, you just brought that up. But how about the trading numbers? I mean, the trading numbers are absolutely outrageous for them and for Citi. I mean, it's, it, that is an area that you, we expected to be strong. It was even stronger than expected. So, you know, there's the, but there's more to the bank than that. And I think that's what we're going to be struggling with for a while now with these financials. And when you look across just about every name, Scott, other than, than something like a BlackRock, an asset manager, but when you look at the banks and the financial world there, they just continue to struggle. And, and I think it's going to take uh, not only time, but obviously we're going to have to see the rates shift around before we really see any like continual upside moves from these names. Because we've had moves to the upside, and then they just pull back. J.P. Morgan, you could close your eyes and say it's a $100 stock, because that's where it's been stuck, it seems like, for months now. Yeah. No kidding. And Josh, you own it, too. What's the issue here? Why is I mean, if not now, when this quarter was good? I think you have to start thinking about these companies like uh, very heavily regulated utilities. They need permission to raise their dividends. They need permission to buy back stock. They need permission to go to the bathroom. All of that is an overhang from the credit bubble that they helped cause 12 years ago has not gone away. Um, we thought that there would be enough deregulation uh, under President Trump that these companies would find new ways to grow, but they aren't. And if you look yes. at the last three years, the S&P 500 is up uh, 20% and these stocks uh, as a group are down 20%. So uh, it's really been a horrible place to be invested, a huge waste of time, as much time as you know we spend talking about these companies. And maybe that'll change someday. In the meantime, I own J.P. Morgan. I think of it as a total return stock. Over the last three years, on an average annual basis, it's giving me about 5.5% in total return. A lot of that comes from the dividend. And as long as you think about it in those terms, and you don't look at it versus Visa, MasterCard, Square, PayPal, you won't be as disappointed. But if you're buying these stocks because you think they're anything other than a very heavily regulated utility, you are bound to be disappointed. Steph, some may look at what's happening right now and say, why bother, right? I mean, is, is this an indictment? Is today's stock move after, after pretty decent earnings? Is it an indictment of the bank trade in general? You can't even get a good day on this. Well, uh, I would just say the setup wasn't all that good because J.P. Morgan rallied 12% over the last three weeks and Citigroup rallied 10% over the last three weeks. So 
They are up um, from their lows, but net-net, you need a steep yield curve. That is absolutely positively what you need for these stocks to actually work. And this is the reason why I have said the names that I own are special situation stories. Wells Fargo is a new CEO. Morgan Stanley love what they're doing in terms of changing their stripes and making M&A and, and, and creating opportunity for themselves, not waiting for the steep yield curve. And Bank of America slowly but quietly is becoming a great digital bank. 80% of their customers use their digital platform. So I think you have to really look stock by stock. The quarter for JP Morgan was very, very good. Citigroup, not so much. Their expenses exploded, right? Their efficiency rate Ratio massively disappointed, and that's why the stock is down more than JP Morgan. JP Morgan, on the flip side, their efficiency ratio fell 600 basis points sequentially in the quarter. Their ROTE measure of profitability, 19, that's going to be best in class. So they're doing everything they can. And as you mentioned, it's the, the trading that uh, came in better than expected, but it's the other part of the bank that's having these struggles, and you need to have a steep yield curve for that to turn around. Well, that, it's trying. We're trying to steepen the yield curve. Well, we, we're trying, but, uh, you know, the, we can't get out of our own way in, in, in terms of that. So, so Degas, as long as the yield curve remains where it is, and, and I don't know, there's no indication that rates are going to rise really anytime soon. I don't know about, you know, uh, under a Biden administration, if you get a massive reflation trade because of a huge stimulus package, if in fact he wins and they do that, that, that would be something that maybe jumpstarts rates. But other than that, there's a reason why you don't own the banks. Well, yes, yeah, Scott, and one reason that we don't own them is that we see um, actually better buys in other spaces in the financials. We do have exposure to capital markets. Uh, we own um, S&P Global. Uh, we own um, uh, Broad, uh, Broadcom. And so we have these companies that we, oh, excuse me, Broadridge, we have these companies that we own that are in the financial sector, but we don't see the same type of valuations that we would like to see in banks before we would re-enter them. Plus, the banks in our particular index, uh, U.S. Active, large cap, Russell 1000 growth, there's, there's really no exposure there. So we actually avoided the banks as we look at our portfolio. Yeah. Josh, you, you made an interesting point. You said something interesting, that if you look at the financials, but you don't, say, look at Visa, or MasterCard, or Square, um, it's almost like you take issue with the way that S&P categorizes what the financials are and who should be in the group and who currently isn't, and that somewhat depresses your ability to deliver alpha, if you will, in the space in general. If you look across the sector classifications done by uh, S&P Dow Jones, the index committee, I would say that financial services is where they've probably made the biggest mistakes and have dropped the ball to the, to the greatest degree. Um, this index is not representative of the way people are using financial services in the modern economy. It's not even close. It's dominated by four banks that haven't been able to grow in over 10 years. And quite frankly, you've now got 73 million millennials and another 75 million Gen Zers right behind them that may never have a traditional uh, savings or checking account at a brick and mortar bank and will not be poorer for that. Um, so and, and the same goes for um, the same goes for investment banking, same goes for insurance. Go on down the list. Um, so I, I think you've got really, really big companies like PayPal, $200 billion market cap, almost three times bigger than Goldman Sachs. It's not in the XLF. It's ludicrous. It would be like if when Airbnb goes public later this year, they throw it in the tech index rather than calling it lodging, which we all clearly know it is. 
So that's been a missed, I, I think, a missed opportunity to reclassify this sector for the 21st century. And for as long as they keep Visa, MasterCard separated from Amex and Discover inexplicably, this sector will continue to be an outperformer and continue to be a loser for people who choose to overweight it. Pete, you own Capital One. I mean, is that right now yeah. the best bang for your banking buck? What I like about it, Scott, is when I look at the revenue, and, and it, everybody always breaks these things down, each one of us does, of course, but a lot of it coming from the credit card, well over 50%. I think it's like 64% coming from the credit card side. So, you know, it's a little bit different. I mean, each one of these banks, to Steph's uh, point, are completely different, one from another from another. And, and I think there are opportunities out there. I would say my knowledge in the option <clears throat> world is what makes J.P. Morgan so intriguing for me, though, Scott, because... I can literally look out to November right now, sell the 105 calls against the stock position and get a little over $2. Well, if I can do that for the next 10 months and the stock does what it's been doing for the last uh, six months, trading close to 100, I know, Steph, it just moved back up towards 100, but it's been in a fairly tight range for a long period of time. If I can take in $2 every single month against that position on a $100 stock, if I can do it 10 times, obviously that's 20%, right? So, I mean, that's what the opportunities are right now in the financials while you're waiting. You also get the dividend yield. You're also looking at Jamie Dimon running the helm there, and you feel very comfortable about it. You can see the trading volumes. But, again, it does come down to what they were talking about as well. It's, it's, it's about the, the curve and, and, and when are we going to see that. But while you're waiting, you can do this against that stock position I, I hear you, and enhance your ability to make some money. I hear you, but, you yeah. know, it's, it's telling to me that everybody obviously thinks so highly of, of Jamie and his ability to run that bank. But Josh yeah. paints a scenario in which the real only reason to own the bank at the current time is because of the dividend. That's what it's come to, Pete. And buyback. Well, the buyback. But the dividend and the buyback. But mostly the dividends. That, that's, what these, that's what it's come to. Right. Oh, you know, and the other own, thing it, own it because it's a utility. That's saying something. That, well, I was going to well, that, that is saying something. And that's where they are stuck right now because they have become a utility because of the fact that they've got all these restrictions on them, number one. But number two, uh, they, they, like everybody, uh, is in a position where much of what they really need to have happen is these rates, and, and, and that's just not happening. So uh, for now, while you're waiting, why not get paid to wait? And that's, that's, that's my point here because I see the quality. We look at the balance sheet. We know what the balance sheet looks like. We have all of that. We've seen some improvements in terms of loan losses, much better than they expected. So there are some positives to take away from what we just heard and what we heard even the quarter before from Jamie Dimon and what they're doing right now. But, again... If I can do that, Scott, and I can bring 20% there and then add on the dividend yield that, that uh, we were just talking about as well, that's not such a bad return on something that you view as quality from top to bottom, fundamentally, and the, uh, and the leadership. That doesn't sound so terrible to me. Yeah. All right, let's bring in Mike Mayo. He's the head of U.S. large cap bank research, Wells Fargo Securities. He just got off the city earnings call, which we'll talk to him about in just a second. But, Mike, let's focus on J.P. Morgan first. It's good to see you, by the way. Thanks for having me. What do you make of the conversation we're having? What, what's going on with J.P. Morgan? Good quarter. Stock's down. Well, first of all, the question is, are you owning J.P. Morgan or the banks for three months or for three years? So we think that J.P. Morgan will lead the industry, lead the largest banks through showing resiliency through these COVID times. And J.P. Morgan, you talk about growth. They grew deposits by $200 billion. That's equal to the eighth largest bank year over year. Their return on tangible equity 
19%. Their efficiency held in check year over year, even by absorbing a body blow of a one-fourth decline in their net interest margin. JP Morgan epitomizes the industry's improved resiliency. Very good results. You're absolutely right. The stock is down on these good results. But the stock also ran up, you know, before this. And look, there's still a recency bias from events from over a decade ago. So you have global financial crisis type prices, but for banks, this will not be the global financial crisis because when you come out of this, you will not, for the largest banks, you're not going to have dilutive equity raising events. You're not going to have large bank failures, but it's going to take time for the banks to prove that. Recency bias for 12 years? How much longer is it going to take? I mean, investors, our viewers are tired of waiting. Well, you're going to have to wait um, because banks are one of the most highest COVID beta sectors there is. In other words, as goes COVID, as goes the banks. Banks have been the worst performers since um, the COVID outbreak, and you're going to need to see some sort of recovery. But I do take exception with the one point, uh, and that is you need interest rates to go higher for banks to work. Absolutely, you're seeing a correlation in the short term. So as goes the 10-year yield, as goes bank stocks in the short term. But we estimate a $200 billion piece dividend once the war on COVID is done. That $200 billion piece dividend equals to more than doubling the earnings from the second quarter. And that doesn't reflect any improvement from interest rates. We do think banks, you know, led by the likes of JP Morgan, can generate returns above the cost of capital through factors such as improving credit. And there's also good citizen costs for the banks. Banks have waived fees and increased expenses to help customers and employees to get through this period. And those costs should be going down, too. All right, Steph. Well, Mayo's coming right at you. He says the point about interest rates, you're overlooking the bigger picture. Well, the market's not looking over the bigger picture, and uh, I just don't know when you're going to see net interest income or net interest margins go higher. I mean, even at J.P. Morgan, they were down, right? And so you need a steeper curve. You absolutely need a steeper curve for that part of the business to work. Sure, they can do well on trading and investment banking and that sort of thing. They can cut costs. Um, they can, when eventually they're going to be able to buy back stock back. I mean, the capital ratios, by the way, at J.P. Morgan were astounding. They're great. I'm not even disputing that, but I think that people are, are waiting for the, the, the traditional part of the bank to do better. And we didn't see it at J.P. Morgan or at Citigroup. It was worse at Citigroup, by the way. By the way, I just wanted to make one point. J.P. Morgan, their cards business, purchase volume was up 20% sequentially and delinquencies fell 14 basis points. So if you're looking for kind of derivative call, I think the credit card companies are interesting. I happen to own American Express, but I think the card numbers should do well as, as well when they report earnings. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's why we were talking about those those two in, in terms of the cards and where Pete is uh, in the market. Um, all right, Mike. So City's call. We mentioned it earlier in the introduction <sighs> to, to you. Um, I don't understand. You called out Mayo. I mean, called out Mayo. You called out Corbat on the call today, <laughs> essentially telling him he should leave today. Why'd you do that? Well, look, I mean, Citigroup, as you know, Scott, I've been on your show for quite a while talking about Citigroup. And Citigroup has disappointed on execution, strategy, controls. And now there's a, a new regulatory consent order. Uh, we estimate the parts are worth 50% more than the whole. So City is worth more dead than alive. If somebody said break up Citigroup, as an investor, you would make money at this point. 
the more realistic outcome is the new CEO, Jane Frazier. She, she used to work at McKinsey going back. She has a strategic perspective. So what we say is you need to McKinseyize Citigroup, sell off businesses as we've brought up at many annual meetings, cut the fat, increase the intensity, improve the sense of urgency. So I said that because I'm hangry. I'm hungry and I'm angry at the same time. I'm hungry for more information on how they're going to fix the business model. And I'm angry that these problems weren't more transparent to investors. So I say, bring on the new CEO, Jane Frazier, tomorrow. Time is up. Time was up a month ago. Time was up a few years ago. They were the poster child among large banks during the global financial crisis. And here they have a regulatory matter. They need to change the business model. Bring in the new CEO now to show that sense of urgency as opposed to say, well, it's going to take time. We'll get to it. No way. And not one investor that I've spoken with has disagreed with this view. Man, you're, I mean, you're talking about this thing like it's a basket case. You're the one with the outperform rating on it. Well, look, the piece, I mean, first of all, there's difference between the execution and the stock price. So for the Citigroup and the industry, second quarter was the low watermark for earnings, returns, and credit reserve builds. So that's all going better. And actually, you're seeing some green shoots, maybe not as much as you like. And the piece dividend for Citigroup should equal 10 times more than the cost it will be to fix some of their regulatory problems. So not to miss the forest for the trees, the biggest driving factor will be winning the war on COVID. Having said that, if you fall short in execution, and if your stock trades at one half of book value, which is, by the way, where it was eight years ago when the current CEO took over, one half of book value, that's good book. This is good book. It's not like you have $50 billion of CDOs on the balance sheet that aren't marked down. This is good book value, which actually grew uh, versus last quarter and last year. So, you know, the value is there. It just needs some management led by the new CEO to, to unleash that trapped value. But I mean, other than looking for a dramatic moment on, on the call, you really think three months is going to make a difference? Corbett's leaving in February. Well, and, you're look, still, and you still are in the eye of the COVID storm. Well, look, you need to set a tone at the top, and it really starts with City's board. Okay, I mean, you, you see the CEOs of Citigroup have gotten paid almost $400 million over the last two decades when the stock's down 80 to 90 percent. That's not capitalism. That's not accountability. So it's, you set a tone at the top of the board saying, we're not waiting another day. We're going to take action now. And Jane Frazier can take over. She can have her honeymoon period of, you know, six months to get everything straight. She can have a strategy. But internally, there's... It would be crystal clear that she's the only person in charge. Having said all this, while it's a longer road for Citigroup, um, you know, our favorites are the highest quality banks like J.P. Morgan, Bank America, U.S. Bancorp, and PNC. But the whole group is so cheap, again, not turning around necessarily in three months, but in three years when you get through this COVID situation, you're going to see that the banks are nothing like they were during the global financial crisis. Josh Brown, do you have a word for mail? Yeah. Um, branch banking is basically uh, drilling for oil at this point. Uh, we have plenty of it. We don't need more. Nobody cares about it. Investors don't care. Why wouldn't these companies close more of their branches and start charging a subscription fee to their clients, calling their clients subs uh, rather than customers, and turn this whole thing into um, an annually recurring revenue bundle type business? They would probably double their multiples on Wall Street. Everyone would cheer. They could still provide the same services they provide, 
but people would actually, um, I think, re-rate these stocks, uh, uh, give them higher multiples, and give them more credit for what they are good at. And then the stuff that's transactional is transactional. I'll give you an example on JP Morgan real quick, Mike. 52% profit uh, jump in uh, capital markets and underwriting. We did a, a million IPOs in the third quarter, and JP Morgan was very involved. They were very involved in raising debt, in, in refinancing. They're great at that. So that part of the business could be transactional. And then their relationship to the 100 million customers they have, or whatever it is, why wouldn't it just be like a Netflix of banking? What, what, what's taking them so long to get this? Every other sector has figured this out. Well, the banking industry are laggards, but Josh, when you start your bank consulting firm, uh, you know, we might have to recommend you to go I to just the did. banks. But it's me and you. The, uh, <laughs> but, but look, the largest banks have half their revenues and fees already, so that's the diversified firms are better positioned to weather the storm. As it relates to branches, many of the branches that are closed will never reopen, and underneath the surface that's now, right. you're seeing the biggest structural change with technology in the history of banking and that's with digital banking and you heard jp morgan today they're not getting 60, credit for it they're not getting they're not credit getting for credit. it mike they, nobody they cares they will get credit for it they will get credit for it because coming through this cycle you will see structurally improved efficiency because a lot more business with a lot in the case of jp morgan more customers at lower marginal cost as you use digital banking like you've never used it before. And you know what, you can't change customer behavior, but customer behavior is changing in the direction of banks' strategic plans 10 years from now. Senior citizens, small businesses that are going into branches, they're using digital banking more. So this really is exciting from a structural standpoint. And then why you, you know, bide your time, banks have the foundations, they have the balance sheets, they have the reserves to go ahead and weather the storm. And what's missed here, is that you know, even Citigroup today mentioned reserve releases are possible next year. Reserve bills at J.P. Morgan are done for now. So that just reinforces the fact that second quarter was a low point. Will J.P. Morgan buy back stock next quarter? Yeah, it's up to the, fine. You, at this point, anything short of nationalizing the banks will be an upside surprise from a regulatory standpoint. These, <laughs> you know, these, these narratives that banks are going to be regulated out of existence, I think that's so far overdone. Right. Dodd-Frank was a bipartisan bill, so regardless of who wins, it, I don't think the world is going to be, a, it's not a life-threatening change for the banks. Um, so I think, you know, there's, look, it's, it's, the momentum is absolutely against the banks in the short term. You can see it with the trading today after some good results. But eventually, stocks follow earnings, and we think earnings will be resilient over the next couple of years. Mike, we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it very much, as always. That's Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo Securities, joining us today. All right, guys, um, keep an eye on tech, too, uh, today after the NASDAQ's monster day yesterday. Uh, what a month it is, Steph, so far for big mega cap tech. Amazon's up 10.5%, Apple 7.5%, big event coming up less than an hour, Alphabet 7.5%, which has been the laggard, Facebook's up 6.5%, Microsoft's up 65 I mean, some of you guys were ready to declare this big tech trade over for a bit and making a whole big deal about how good the economic data was, and that's why it's time to get into cyclical stocks. Haven't these just roared back and said, no, 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 not so fast. This is still where the money's going to be made, Steph. 
I think the money is going to be made in tech. I've been saying it all along, though. I've said you want to own a barbell. You absolutely want to own secular tech because the total addressable markets are enormous. And the free cash flow generation and the market shares that they're gaining, especially as work from home, stay at home, the, the fact that they're gaining so much market share is such a powerful tailwind for these companies. So you absolutely want to have some of these companies. And oh, by the way, reading all kinds of things today about IT spending starting to pick up uh, that, um, that uh, Chromebooks actually is doing very, very well for Microsoft. Um, and uh, actually, notebook demand up 7% month over month just, um, in, uh, it just in notebooks alone. So there's a lot of things happening, right? Home and, and corporate starting to spend a little bit and market shares. So I still think you want to be part of technology. But I also think you want to still own some cyclicals because I still think that the economic data is getting better. Well, I mean, the, the point about the barbell thing, though, is it like a 45 plate on the tech and a 10 plate? <laughs> On the, on the cyclical and value stocks? Because that's what the market keeps screaming every time, right? Don't put the 45 on well, the value side because, no, it's not going to work. No, te te technology is 29% of my benchmark. So, of course, I have to have more of a tilt on technology. But if you add up materials, industrials, some discretionary, some financials, that can get closer to 20% of my benchmark. So by na naturally, um, you have to make bets. And I'm making a bigger bet, at least on the industrial side, because I, I think that's where you're going to see operating leverage versus, say, financials, where I'm being more specific, stock specific. But no, I mean, I think I've cited many different times the total addressable markets and how exciting it is. Internet of Things, a trillion dollars by the end of the decade. SaaS Cloud, a trillion dollars by the end of the decade. Wearables, 55 billion by the uh, the next two years. There are all kinds of total addressable market numbers. I didn't even talk about AI, which is also going to be a trillion dollars by the mid mid uh, 2025. So I can make a case to own these names, but I don't want to be all in tech. I do want to have diversification. And I have made money, by the way, a lot of money in some of these industrials and in some of these cyclicals. You just have to have balance. Degas, Microsoft today, Target goes to 250 from 230 at RBC. That's a stock you own. Positive calls today on Qualcomm and Micron and Tesla as well. You could take any one of those. The point being that the street keeps upping price targets right down the list. Yeah, you know, and I'm going to uh, piggyback up what uh, Stephanie just talked about. I think when, and Scott, you mentioned this too, when you talked about value, uh, you know, the old definition of value says, well, utility stocks are value, uh, technology stocks are, are growth. I think that's the wrong way of looking at value. You have to look at value from a vantage point of within sector. Also, if you really start talk, talking about looking at book to market. Book to market is a measure of old economy, factories, plant, and equipment. As Stephanie just brought out is that if you look at for te technology, for instance, let's look at a valuation measure that really does a better job in technology, and that's operating cash flow yield. And that's a measure of how much cash is generated relative to the market value. If you look at Apple and, or Mark, uh, Microsoft, if you look at Apple, Apple has a operating cash flow yield of 9.1%. And that is actually a value premium in a technology sector. Microsoft has a uh, operating cash flow yield of 8.1%. Once again, that's a value premium. So when I look at Microsoft, when I look at Apple, I see value premiums. In other words, you can buy these stocks. The stocks are actually priced as it relates to the value mm -hmm. within the technology sector. These are buys at this level. Okay. Uh, speaking of Apple, I said the event uh, less than an hour away. Uh, we will trade it ahead of that, of course, before we go. Coming up next. 
PGA Tour golfer Justin Thomas joins us first on CNBC. That's ahead of the CJ Cup this Thursday on NBC, the Golf Channel as well. Plus, Disney getting a buy call on the back of its big-time shakeup. It is the best-performing stock in the Dow today. Of course, we're going to debate it in our call of the day. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Virginia's voter registration website has gone down on the last day to register. Officials are blaming a cable that was accidentally cut. The State Department of Elections says it is working to restore service as soon as possible. In Georgia, more than 128,000 people cast their ballots on this first day of early voting. That's a record for that state and a 40 percent increase from the first day of early voting in 2016. The World Trade Organization ruling the European Union can impose tariffs on $4 billion worth of U.S. goods in retaliation against subsidies to the plane maker Boeing. The U.S. Trade Representative says the EU has no legal basis to impose those tariffs. And take a look at this. This is what happens when the Nobel Committee can't get a hold of you to say you've won the economics prize. Luckily and unbelievably, the co-winner, Robert Wilson, lives right next door. And he brought his wife along to wake up Paul Milgram with the very good news and to tell him to answer his phone. I don't know what the odds are of two Nobel Prize winners living next door, but there you yeah, have right. it. Yeah, good viral moment uh, for sure. Sue, thanks. You got it. All right, that's Sue Herrera for us. Well, the investment committee making a lot of moves today. Let's go through some of them. Degas, tell me, you bought UPS, you trimmed Home Depot, but I want more about UPS. Yeah, yeah, uh, Scott, UPS. Uh, one, drone delivery. They've been working with hospitals and labs to do that, and now they have FAA approval. So that's going to be a growth area for them. I also like the operating cash flow yield, 14%. Stephanie Link, you bought Dow Chemical. Newest position for you? I did. I did. It's a new position. I haven't owned it in a while. Um, the yield actually was the most attractive thing to me about it. But it's also a very diversified specialty chemical, chemical company. And we've talked about how housing, construction, auto is doing well. They have all that exposure there. They're getting good pricing, good cost control. So I think there's margin upside as well. Stock's still down 10% year to date. And I think that yield is very, very attractive and it's well covered. Yeah. Uh, Pete, you got a lot of new moves, and I don't know if we can make yeah. a, make make it through sure. all of them at this moment. But I hope hope we no, will before no, the no. end of the show. Delta calls coming off their earnings. I mean, look, yeah. the CEO was on with Phil and the gang this morning. Mm -hmm. Maybe some glimmers of light starting to show at the end of the tunnel now in terms of free cash flow positive by the spring and the pickup in traffic, et cetera. And I think that's what you are seeing right now, Scott. And I, and I think I, people were very encouraged, especially when they learned some of the metrics of what they're hearing in terms of how many folks have flown and how many people have actually contracted the virus. And those, those kind of numbers were extraordinary. I think Phil LeBeau is even pretty sh shocked by some of those numbers um, on, in a positive way. So at some point in time, they'll start to turn. This is a trade. This is not an investment for me. But I think that there is uh, room out there for a name like Delta or United or Southwest to have a pretty nice spike at some point in time when people feel a little bit more comfortable. And that's why I think we've seen some option activity in a lot of these various names yeah. recently. Yeah, we'll hear from United uh, tomorrow uh, as well. So we'll get that perspective yeah. from that company. Datadog, tell me quick, then I'm going to move on. We'll come back to some of the names later. 
Might be one of my, my most favorite of those crazy names out there, Scott, where you just can't look at PE. You've just got to look at what the company does. I think this is a name. I've been in it before. Before, we actually rode this thing up through 100. Now it looks like it wants to break out even further. A lot of activity out there. I think this is a name that can continue to work based upon what they are, the quality of what they are, and who they're going after. There's plenty of room in this space for them to make money along with all the rest. All right. Stock's getting a big, uh, big day, about 4%. And we'll get to some of those other moves later, Pete. We'll try and do that. Meantime, the PGA Tour CJ Cup is teeing off in a new venue on Thursday, Las Vegas' Shadow Creek. That tournament, which is normally held in Korea, has been moved to the U.S. due to COVID-19. Joining me now, first on CNBC, is the 2019 CJ Cup defending champion Justin Thomas. JT, welcome back to Halftime. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good course out in uh, Shadow Creek. Uh, nice spot out in Vegas. What's the field look like this week? Oh, it's an unbelievable field. It, um, it always is. And although it would be very nice to obviously be, uh, be in Jeju Island, CJ has done an unbelievable job of, of putting on a, a tremendous event again uh, here at Shadow Creek. And it's, um, it's fun. I mean, I even, even had some Korean barbecue yesterday, so I still feel like I'm there. It's nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, because of the change in venue and just it, it makes me think of just the larger environment that you guys have had to deal with. What, how would you sum up life on the PGA Tour this year with, in a COVID backdrop? Um, it's obviously different, but to be perfectly honest, it, it feels normal now. I mean, the tour has done an unbelievable job of making the process as easy as possible of, you know, I know that I just, I might go a day earlier now, or I might go four or five hours earlier than normal and, and just go and get my testing done with. And then you go, you get your credentials and then you're free to, you know, to get into all the areas. And if you need to pick something up, you go to the distribution center and it's, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, Obviously, it'd be nice to have everything normal and have fans out here, but um, this is the norm right now, and it's what we have. And, again, the tour has done a great job and made it very comfortable, very safe for us. And, um, it's like I said, it feels about uh, it feels like we've been doing this our, uh, our whole career on tour. Are you guys able to have any family members out on tour with you at any of these events? I don't even know what, what the, the tour is doing in the, those regards right now. Um, it's, we haven't, uh, wives, girlfriends, spouses, they can come out. Um, I'm very lucky that my, my dad is my coach. So, uh, my dad gets to, gets to be here, but, uh, in, in a different, different spectating way, he, he's, he's observing as a coach and, and now as a father, I guess. But, uh, my mom was able to come to, uh, to the tour championship. And, uh, I think it's just going to progressively, hopefully get to where, you know, family might be able to come and then, and so on and so forth. But, uh, I mean, the, the number one priority is that, you know, we continue to play without, uh, you know, without positive cases and, and continue to, to be safe, which we've done a good job of. So uh, I trust the tour and what they're doing. But mm -hmm. um, I know that a lot of guys would love to have their families out. Yeah, of course, since it's Vegas, I mean, it's going to mark the first time the PGA Tour is going to have uh, a live odds. I'm, I'm wondering what you make of this whole betting angle coming in now uh, to golf. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's uh, I know it has a, an unbelievable market uh, right now. It's it's something that's especially with not being able to go to sporting events. It's something I know I've looked at in, ter in terms of stocks as different um, you know different betting companies. But I know that that people at home are, are going to you know have that luxury of, of having I guess a, an additional reason to watch golf and um, you know hopefully it's nothing but positive and um, and gets the sport even more recognized and and get it in an even better place than it already is wow did i just hear you say you're investing in DraftKings stock 
<laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you didn't have to. You made it seem that way. Best of luck. Thanks for being back. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Appreciate right, that, it. That's Justin Thomas. Again, CJ Cup kicks off Thursday on our property, the Golf Channel. Well, Disney shares popping as it shifts its focus to streaming all in. The stock also getting an upgrade today. So should you add it to your portfolio? We debate that next. We're back. Let's talk Disney. Pete, I'm looking to you. You own it. Okay. You got a bullish call today on the on the back of that reorg that the company announced yesterday. CEO Chapek tilting the scale towards the direct to consumer business. You like this move? I do. And it's something that Dan Loeb talked about, too. Right, Scott? I mean, we we had this uh, conversation just last week. We were talking about that. And he was discussing, I think it was him, that was discussing the idea of cutting the dividend permanently to sort of finance this thing. I don't think you need to. And and my disagreement was only on that aspect of it. Other than that, I think streaming has been the place to be. It was the only thing that I was ever critical about with Iger was the move towards streaming because it was there in front of them and maybe it was Netflix, maybe it was whatever. Well, that doesn't matter anymore because they have moved, Scott, and they've moved at the right time and we certainly are seeing exactly what their game plan is going forward. It's content, it's DTC, and it's getting it out there, not just here, but internationally. And I think this is something that makes total sense for Disney going forward. And I, I've been in the stock a long, long period of time. Mm-hmm. I mostly went to calls recently just to trade around it. But I do think this is a reason for me to start saying, you know what, this could be, again, another long-term hold. Stock went from 150 to 95. Now here it is where it is right now. I think there's going to be plenty of more upside in the future. All right, speaking of trading, the Apple trade's coming up. Its event's about 15 minutes away, top of the hour. And tomorrow, Shepard Smith goes inside the U.S. air travel system meeting the essential workers struggling to keep their industry alive. Shepard Smith reports air travel in turmoil, 8 p.m. Eastern. That is tomorrow right here on CNBC. Welcome back. We're about 15 minutes away now. There's the countdown clock. Apple's big event, high-speed event, they say, 5G. That's what we say. Josh Brown, the stock's run up. Is it worth the hype? Is the event worth the hype? Yeah, because some people are talking today that it's not. It almost never is. If you if you if you go back and look at what happens to a fictional trader who uh, puts on a position the day before or the week before an Apple event and then sells it within a day or a week after, it's it's mishmash. It's meaningless. So I don't think anyone should look at these things as catalysts per se. Although there have been some moments over the years where people were wowed, it's just not like that. It's more for tech journalists and and uh, business journalists and analysts. Well, let me say that. Let me, let me rephrase my question map. then. Let it, me rephrase it, my question. It's not I, a great I'm not talking. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not talking about the the spectacle of the event itself. I, who cares about that? I'm talking about what Apple's going to unveil there. 5G. Okay. Piper today says their survey points to lower than expected demand. This fall and winter, Joanna Stern from the Wall Street Journal was just on last hour, said 5G is not worth the hype, dot, 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 yet, and that it's not the reason to upgrade 5G because the carriers aren't even ready. So are we making too much of 5G, at least initially, and what it's going to mean for the stock? Has the stock run up too much into 5G? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of the people that buy 5G phones are just replacing other phones that they would have bought anyway or that they already bought. We're, we're in replacement cycle. And so 5G is definitely exciting, but probably more exciting for the users than it is for investors in Apple stock. That being said, 
there are publicly traded ways to play 5G that are not overhyped. Um, here's an example, INFI or INFI, I-N-P-H-I. Um, the ticker, I think, is I-N-P-H. Look at this stock. Look at it carefully. This is a semiconductor play. It's almost a pure play at this point, given what's gone on with the market cap on 5G. So, like, if you're really excited about this upgrade cycle and you want to be involved in a component company that's, like, directly going to see sales explode, this is where that kind of thing is happening. Apple, Verizon, I own both of them. Not so much. Steph, what's the ticker symbol, first of all, Josh, of what you were talking about? I N as in Nancy. Oh, I N. H. All right. So I'm just saying, like this is like this is an example of a stock that's working on. Steph, you own it for. I'm sorry. This is an example of a stock that's working on. Excuse me. I P H I. I P H I. This is a 5G stock. If you want to play there, this is what you should be doing. All right. Now I got it. Now I got it. I P H I. Sorry about that. My bad. No, no worries. Uh, Steph, you own it for 5G. Uh, that is Apple. Well, it's one of the reasons I own Apple, but um, I think the stock has gone from a 14 multiple three years ago to a 40 multiple today. So a lot of good news is reflected in it. But it's not just iPhone anymore, right? We've all talked about services. And services last quarter grew 15%. Very impressive. It carries higher margins. And so I think that is very much attractive to the story, um, as well as wearables. Wearables, as I mentioned earlier on the show, $55 billion total addressable market in two years' time. Just imagine where it's going to go by the end of the decade. So I like Apple. But to Josh's point, um, I actually own Broadcom. Broadcom is a 5G play. And that stock trades at half the multiple. And you get a 3.4% dividend yield. You also get data center and software in the mix as well. So I think there are other ways of playing 5G. But I do like this story, uh, the Apple story for it. Um, I just think a lot of good news is priced in. So I'm going to hold on to it. I'm not going to buy more. I'll hold on to it. I'm looking at IPHI right now, Josh. About $6 billion market cap. The stock is almost a double uh, over a 12-month period. It's obviously getting a, a nice move here. We don't talk about it all that often, but that's the move uh, in Infi. In How long have you owned it? I don't own it. I'm giving you an example of, of something that people are trading to capitalize on 5G. That's a pure play. So this, co- this company's components go into other companies' chips and allow those chips to receive uh, mixed signals, both analog and digital signals, which is essential for data transfer and things like that in 5G. So this is the type of company that if you're like super bullish on 5G adoption, like these are the names that you're looking at. You're not really looking at the tech giants that, you know, people would buy an iPhone whether there was 5G this year or not. So that, that's, that's kind of how I feel about I it. I got you. Okay. We will be right back. Let's do the futures outlook. Earnings season kicking off today, I think with a bang. Let's find out how the futures market is navigating that. Bill Baruch, Jeff Kilberg. Bill, you first. I mean, pretty good from City JPM. Yeah, you know, for one second, forget how bullish the summer run was. The pullback in September, we had tremendous groundwork, technical groundwork, inverse head and shoulders through that September bottom. We broke out above that neckline. We've seen some unfinished business in the surge the last couple sessions, so there is strong support. I think we'll be making new record highs by the first quarter, start of the first quarter. I looked and buy dips, 34.75, 
34.30 at that neckline. Those are big support levels. If that holds, the more bullish we are into quarter one. Hey, Jeff, we're only, what, one and a half percent away from an S&P high anyway. That's right, Judge. And I'm bullish here. And despite the fact that we are seeing some selling pressure today, the market seems a little heavy, about as heavy as a couple of 45-pound weights stacked on Pete Nigerian's bench press bar. But I do see higher. We're going to have an earnings season. This is the most important earnings season ever, in my mind, Scott. And we need that measuring stick. But lastly, any type of stimulus, any type of stimulus is going to move us higher. Yeah. All right. Good stuff, guys. Thanks. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right, Pete, start us off. Final trades. What do you got? I'll give you. All right, I'm going to give you a stitch fix. I think it's going to break out to new highs. Okay, thank you for that. Degas? Market access, 85% market share, all U.S. bonds trading. Okay, Stephanie Link. Google laggard plays catch up. Josh Brown? CrowdStrike, new record high. What's yep, up? stock you keep adding to. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. The Apple event begins right now. So does the exchange. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.